0: Well, good morning. It's so good to have you with us, whether you're online with us or here in the auditorium. Thanks for spending this hour with us this morning. We're in week four of a series that we're calling, What is God Like? And it's our hope and desire that through the course of this series of talks, that it might blow away some of the mis- mistakes and distortions and misunderstandings that you have about what God is like <clears throat> and what it means about following Him. So thanks for being a part of this series with us. Today, we take the issue of rules under consideration. <coughs> Excuse me. Rules, for instance. Uh, rules in Jesus' day were a big deal. Uh, the religious leaders had lots of rules. In fact, so much so that they ended up making rules to help you keep God's rules. Rules on top of rules on top of rules. Today, we're going to look at a miracle that led to a conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders in which he blows apart the whole idea that all of these rules are necessary to be a follower of Jesus. Our story begins just outside of the walls of Jerusalem at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. It's a large spring-fed pool and surrounded by five colonnades, one on each side and then one down the middle. And in those colonnades, people would come. And it was there that Jesus taught a very important lesson to the people of his day, which is equally important for us. This is the lesson. Rules that keep us from being loving, caring people do not reflect the heart of God and his love and care for all people. Rules that keep us from being loving, caring people do not reflect the heart of God and his love and care for all people. That's the thrust of the whole conversation. But let's back it up a minute. Bethesda was the perfect location for this conversation to take place. The perfect environment to spark this particular conversation. John, a disciple of Jesus, who walked with him for his entire time that he was teaching on this earth, wrote the account, and he starts it off this way. Sometime later... Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. <coughs> now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic, and Aramaic is the common language of the people of that time and region. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which means house of mercy. Keep that in mind. And which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Notice that John gives us very specific details about who it is that's surrounding this particular pool. He wants us to know that these are people that would really have overwhelming physical disabilities and little hope of anything ever changing for them. Because of their disabilities, they likely were not able to care for themselves or at least not care for themselves well. They were oftentimes dependent upon the generosity of people to provide them resources for even simple things like food. And they were, for the most part, looked down on because in that time, it was commonly believed that if you had a significant disability like blindness or paralysis, that it was a consequence of sin, either your sin or, imagine this, the sin of your parents. So all of the people there were looked upon suspiciously, like they're getting what they deserve. Because either they have sinned or their parents have sinned, and therefore this disability, this, this, the, this infirmity that they have, is a consequence of all of that. Now, there's another piece of background that we need to understand There was a legend at the pool of Bethesda that from time to time an angel would come down from heaven and stir up the pool, and the first person to get into the water when the angel stirred up the pool would be healed of whatever his or her infirmity would be. Well, you can imagine then the kind of chaos that would ensue when the water began to bubble up and people were climbing over one another, pushing one another, yelling at one another, trying to get to be the first one into the pool in hopes that they would be healed. It's into that emotionally charged setting that Jesus brings his disciples one day to teach them something and us something about what it means to be a follower of him. We read in John chapter 5, one who was there Under the colonnades, around the pool, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, does that strike you as a curious question for Jesus to ask? I mean, the guy's been 38 years, unable to walk. He's lying alongside of the pool, hoping to be the first one to get into the pool to get healed. Isn't that why he's there to try to get healed? Isn't that what his deepest desire would be to one day again walk? Well, I think there's another reason why Jesus asked the question. I believe that Jesus asked him that question because he did not want to force his will on someone else. You see, the whole idea that Jesus would force his will on someone, goes contrary to everything that he has done. If you read the Gospels, you'll find that he never does that. He wants to be invited in. He doesn't just simply step in and do something of his own volition whether you want it or not. That's what I believe is happening here. It's an invitational way of engaging this person. Saying, do you want to get well? Now, Understand this, as we're going to see as we look deeper into this story, this guy laying there on his mat alongside the pool of Bethesda has no idea who just asked him, do you want to get well? He doesn't know who this is. He doesn't know what this person can do for him. But he does answer the question. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred while I'm trying to get in. Someone else goes down ahead of me. I want to get well. I believe the legend. If I could only be the first one in, I think then I would get healed. But I'm not strong enough to reach the water to be the first one in. And in my mind's eye, when I read what happens next, I envision Jesus getting down on one knee, kneeling alongside of this man on his mat, and whispering in his ear, Get up pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. He had no idea what this person was able to do for him. Can you imagine how he felt in that moment? I mean, everything for him has suddenly changed. After 38 years, he's able to walk again. And he does exactly what Jesus said. He rolls up his mat. Now, we're not not talking about a mattress. We're not talking about that purple thing you get in a box that expands. We're talking about a grass mat, which he rolled up, tucked under his arm, and walked. And as he walks that way, away from the pool of Bethesda, Jesus and his disciples walked that way. It was a miracle. And it wouldn't have been surprising at all if John had stopped the whole story and said, Isn't that amazing? Look what Jesus just did. But the miracle is not the point of the story. And we know it's not because of what happens next in this particular account. After Jesus tells the man to get up and walk, he does exactly that. But John gives us a hint of what's to come. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath, which to us, Seems okay, what's the deal? But first century Jews treated the Sabbath very significantly. Some of you, like me, were raised in a church where you heard the Ten Commandments. You may have even memorized them. Uh, Okay, so let's have a test. Let's see how much you remember. Commandment number four remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. Now, admittedly, by keeping it holy is a little vague, right? It didn't completely fill in the blanks of how do I keep it holy. Well, the good news is that the religious leaders were more than happy to fill in that blank for you. It's kind of like, okay, it's kind of like what I had growing up. Sabbath was now Sunday. And we were called to keep Sunday holy. And a whole set of rules were constructed around that. Rules like, sorry, you can't ride your bike. You can't shoot hoops. You can't play catch. You can't swim, even when you're on vacation. We had all kinds of rules because we're keeping the Sunday holy. Well, the Jews were no different. In fact, the Jews were worse. The religious leaders of the time, they created this whole set of rules to make sure that the people kept the Sabbath holy. And then, to top it all off, every Sunday you'd see them walking around Jerusalem in their robes, watching you to make sure you were keeping the Sabbath holy according to their rules. That you weren't violating any of their rules. And they were serious about what they were doing. So that particular Sunday, when Jesus healed the man at the pool of, at the pool of Bethesda, they see him walking in horror of horrors. He's carrying his mat. Here's what they said. It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Well, not Exactly. I mean, the law didn't technically say that. The law said, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. It didn't say you can't carry your mat. But that's what they decided. Again, let me set some context for you. Back in the day, when Moses went on Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments, those were written commandments, right? You've seen Charlton Heston carrying the stones down the rock. But according to tradition, Moses was also given Verbal rules, oral rules, oral Torah. Torah in Hebrew means law. So they had the written Torah, the Ten Commandments, and they had the oral Torah, which were the verbal instructions and laws that that God gave Moses, which for some reason he said, don't write these down. So he didn't. But the religious leaders believed that the oral rules were just as important as the written rules. In fact, they needed to have the oral rules lest people violate the written rules. And so they kept pressing in those oral rules and gave them equal authority to the written rules. So it wasn't just now about keeping the written law of God. It was also about keeping the oral laws that the religious leaders of the day had put together. Now, get this. It gets better, okay? You think we had a bad, those of us who couldn't ride bikes on Sunday. The oral law contained... 39 categories, 39 categories of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. Not 39 things you couldn't do, 39 categories of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. And of course, one of them was you can't carry something from point A to point B because that's considered work. And here comes this guy carrying his straw mat under his arm. And they stopped him and said, you can't do that. You're in violation of the law. So challenged by these religious leaders, how does he respond? Well, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Now, he still doesn't know who did that for him. It's just the man who made me well. And I love it that he doesn't know who who healed him, but because he's frightened of the religious leaders, He immediately throws Jesus under the bus and says, hey, it's not my fault. I wouldn't be doing this except that guy, I don't even know his name, but that guy told me to pick up my mat and walk. And I I imagine that in his mind he's going, yeah, but understand this. That guy chose to do something for me that, that I couldn't imagine having happened. He healed me. And because he healed me and gave me my legs back, I'm going to do what he says. And what have you done for me? For 38 years, you've judged me and condemned me. And now you're telling me that I'm in trouble because I'm carrying a mat when this guy who healed me and gave me the ability to walk again? He says, take up your mat and walk. He gave me what I didn't deserve. He did something for me that I couldn't expect. So I chose to pick up my mat and walk even though I was pretty sure I'd get in trouble with you, and now look at it, here we are. At which point, the religious leaders asked what is kind of a logical question. Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? In other words, tell us the name of the man who defies our laws and defiles our Sabbath. Because if he actually healed you, then understand that he broke the laws of Sabbath too because we have another law that says you cannot practice medicine on the Sabbath no matter what the circumstance unless it is to save a life. And let's be real here. The guy wasn't saving your life. I mean, you weren't dying. You'd been paralyzed for a long time, 38 years. He could have waited one more day to heal you But he chose to do it on the Sabbath, which is a violation of the law. We want to know his name. Give it up to us because you and he are in big trouble. The man says, uh, the man who healed, who was healed, had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. He said, I don't know who it was. I just don't know. I find this fascinating. The religious leaders who were desperate to follow the rules were in fact missing the point. What was the point about keeping the Sabbath holy? Was it crafting a whole set of rules so that you were undoubtedly going to violate them in some fashion? No, the point of the command, the point of God's command to keep the Sabbath holy was this, to take a break from your labor but not necessarily to take a break from love of other people. It was to take a break from your occupation, but not to step away from from compassion. In fact, I think John recorded this story just for that reason. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he wrote it down so that we would have that lesson come to us as well. Because this is something that can happen to religious people when we fail to understand the heart of God behind a rule that he gives to us. When the rule becomes more important than the God who gave the rule. When the rule becomes more important than understanding the heart of the God who gave that rule. Here's something I think we need to keep in mind. Whenever what's best for people isn't what's most important to you, you are at odds with God. Whenever what's best for people isn't what's most important to you, you are at odds with God. And some of you are probably thinking, whoa, Bob, back it down a little bit, boy. How can you say that? What what gives you the authority to say something like that? Well, it's because of something John wrote earlier, something that you've probably heard multiple times. It's this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Ah, yeah, I remember that verse. I've heard that before. In other words, with this verse, we see that God loved the world. Every person of every race, of every color, of every gender, of every generation. He loved them so much that he sent his son, his only son, to pay for the sins of the world to offer everyone the opportunity to be reconnected to him. That is a staggering thought. The breadth of God's love and the depth of his love that everyone has the opportunity to be reconciled and the depth of it, the reality that he gave his son so that we might be forgiven of what we cannot care for ourselves therefore if God really loves everyone and cares about everyone then anything that I do to hurt another person is sin and anything I do to distance another person from God is sin And any time I use the Bible in a way that fails to treat another person with dignity and compassion is sin. Back to the story. What happens next might strike you as being one of the most unkind things Jesus ever said in his time on earth. Listen to this. Later, Jesus found him, the man he had healed, at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. And then this, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. It's kind of like, whoa, Jesus, cool it. Take a breath, dude. I mean, really? Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you? That seems a little unkind, a little harsh maybe, maybe cruel. In fact, Jesus, that almost sounds like a threat. Are you threatening him? Well, here's what I think is going on. Alongside the pool of Bethesda one day, Jesus met a man who had a physical need. And in his grace and love for that individual, he healed his physical need. He restored his body. But Jesus wanted to do more than just restore the man's body. He wanted more for him. He wanted to restore his soul. He wanted him to be in a great, new, vibrant, living relationship with a loving God. So he challenges him and said, I want you to understand there's something worse than a physical infirmity. There's something worse than suffering from a physical disease or some kind of disability. And something worse is living and dying. In your sin. In other words, the work of God's grace in our life should create his desire within us for a change of heart. When God pours his grace on us, it should cause us to want to be different. Let me put it this way for you. It is never right to accept the work of God's grace in our life. It can be forgiveness of sin. It can be a blessing that he gives us. It can be a healing that he provides for us. It can be any of those things and more. It is never right to accept the work of God's grace in our life and then continue to live life on our terms. It just isn't. Gratitude calls us to a different response, to a yielding to walk with him in his ways instead of expecting him to walk with us in our ways. That's a hard truth, but it was true for that man who had been healed alongside the pool of Bethesda, and it's true for you and me today. The narrative concludes with the conversation between Jesus and the leaders, and it helps us to understand why John thought that this needed to be included in the whole of the life of Jesus in this story. In John 5, we read, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. In other words, God doesn't obey your rules about how to behave on the Sabbath. And he didn't take a day off today from showing compassion to someone that he loves and cares about. If you think God is violating your version of the Sabbath, then you've missed the point. You don't know God, and you don't know his heart. God is always at work to accomplish his purposes. Oh, and one more thing. I am just like him. Well, that really set off the religious leaders. That was all they needed to hear. So we read this. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. In this particular passage, Jesus sums it all up by saying, if you really really want to know God, you've got to know me. He put it this way, I think. If you want to know what God is like, watch me. If you want to know what God would say in a situation, listen to me. If you want to know how God would respond in a situation, learn from me. But if you want to know God, you've got to know me. That's what Jesus is saying. And that was true that day, and it's true today. If you want to know God, then get to know Jesus. Instead of giving us another mashup of rules and regulations, Jesus gave his followers a simple, straightforward command and said, this is how you are to behave because of who God is and because of what I have shown you about God. He put it in these words that night he was betrayed. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Back in the day when I was in seminary studying Greek, we learned that there were no exclamation points in the Greek language. But if they wanted to emphasize something, they would emphasize by repetition. And there you have repetition. In a short, simple, two-sentence statement, three times over, Jesus said, love one another. Love one another love one another. And so here's the bottom line. Our rules should never take priority over compassion. It's not that rules are bad. It's just that sometimes we elevate rules too high. We make them too big, and we don't have reason for it. And therefore, our rules should never take priority over our compassion. We live in a world of confusion. We have shifting beliefs and shifting values in a rapidly changing culture. We almost always know what it means to love another person. We may not always want to do it, but we know what it requires of us. So I wanna leave you with a question. Does your commitment to follow rules get in the way of compassion? Does your willingness to live by a set of rules ever keep you from loving other people? Does it keep you from extending yourself in grace to another person? Does your version of Christianity that you live out and proclaim to other people ever get in the way of loving people? Because if it does, it's time to change. It's time to change your concept of who God is and how God operates and how we are to live as a follower of Jesus. And the good news is you can do that by focusing on Jesus and learning to love one another and allow the rules to be set aside so that you can love as God loves and care as God cares. And when you do that, what do you show? You show God flowing through you. You show God displayed before another person. So examine that for yourself. Maybe it's time for a change about how you display God to the people around you. We're going to end our service today with communion. And I think it's fitting that we do so. We already have seen this morning how great God's love is, how deep his love is, that he would send his son to die for us so that we might have forgiveness of sins. When we come to communion, we come not because we deserve it or have earned it somehow. We come because Jesus commanded us to remember him. And so when we take the wafer and we we hold it in our hand, we recognize that this is a symbol of the body of Christ that was given for us. And we dip it into the juice. And it reminds us that he shed his blood for us. And when we place it into our mouth, we declare our oneness with him. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, we invite you to be a participant in this service of communion. And if you're just kind of looking and examining and exploring, and you don't feel comfortable with that, that's okay. No judgment. Just stay in your seat. Uh, The band is going to play some music for us. There will be people here at the front and along the back that are prepared to serve you. You just make your way forward when you're ready. Take the wafer, dip it into the juice, and give God thanks for the love that He has displayed in your life. And remember that as we go from here, we are to love as we have been loved.
1: As we uh, take communion this morning, um, if you've been here uh, recently, we've been, we've been adding some hymns into our worship time in this series. Um, these beautiful old songs. And um, this morning, uh, what, what better hymn to sing as we take communion, a song called How Deep the Father's Love. Come to the table.
0: stand, please, as we conclude our service in prayer. Father, we are staggered and humbled by the depth of your love for us. Thank you for loving us in all of our unloveliness. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for calling us to love one another we're grateful for your love and we ask for your strength that will help us to love others to help us lay down the rules that so easily float in our minds so we might love as you love and care as you care help us this week to love those that we encounter to reflect your love to them we pray for your help and your grace and your strength we pray all of this in the name of jesus christ our savior our lord and our king and everyone said amen thank you god bless you have a great week